This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, The Beautiful and the Damned, examining the queerness of the vampire genre. So we are well into the spooky season now. And so naturally we are back with another episode um, in dedication to our spookathon. Yeah, now we've obviously done episodes in the past on vampires in folklore and vampires in film and literature, but there's an angle we've been saving up. Yes. So we said last week that the vampire deserved its own episode dedicated to exploring how it's the go-to monster for presenting queerness in horror. And so here we are. And there is so much for us to cover that this is actually going to be a double barrel episode. That's right, guys. You're going to get two weeks of vampires. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> One for the vampire fans out there. Okay, so let's let's have a quick look at sort of a history of vampires and queerness as they relate to each other, not just randomly, because that would yeah. be a very long episode. <laughs> yeah. So originally vampires weren't really distinguished from werewolves, ghosts, fairies, or other kind of dark creatures um we like i said have done a vampire episode in the past so you can find out a little bit more about that uh from there in fact last year we we looked at some of the vampires that you find uh in the uk and stuff like that so if you're interested do check that out but uh Moving into the realms of literature and film vampires like other hollywood monsters uh have basically very often or pretty much always represented the other now that could include immigrants threats from eastern europe uh, people who chose to live or were pushed to live on the margins of society and so forth yeah however the vampire was and is uniquely suited to represent the other in the form of queerness mm-hmm. there's a hypersexuality in how the vampire is presented uh, certainly from the film version if you thought of the folkloric version you'd be like sexuality yeah. <laughs> um, no <laughs> um, but there's the way they reproduce for example which you know we'll get into there's the way they're often tied into stories of isolation and longing there's you know there's a lot of crossover there with stories of queerness basically yeah and you also have victims often being both repelled and fascinated by uh by vampires, by their beauty and their otherness. Yeah, um, a lot of this par- parity is most likely unintentional on the part of the writers, particularly some of the ones we're going to discuss. Yeah. Uh, however, if you are searching for any reason for something which you can form an emotional bond with in fiction, chances are the vampire does have you covered if you feel like a bit of an outsider. Mm-hmm. This is because a lot of the alleged coding is unconscious or unintentional. Um, it's well it's not all good essentially uh, but we would argue that even the most negative portrayals are important because they have historically drawn attention to the problem itself and in fact they still do yeah it's very difficult to change or challenge something when no one will acknowledge it exists uh, the vampire has paradoxically pointed out areas where we can all improve our understanding 
So that's kind of our start position. We may change our mind by the end of these two episodes, but let's get into it and see how we get on. Yes. So we'll begin with sexuality and reproduction. So of all monsters, the vampire is presented as the most seductive and the most hypersexual, particularly in sort of more modern, I say more modern, but books and within uh, the film universe. Anything from the late sort of 1700s onwards, really. Yeah. Um, There's the way they entice their prey. Beauty, an aura of uninhibited sexual energy and prowess, often going through the motions of a great seduction. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fact that they then use this sexual magnetism to feed and often destroy their prey merely doubles down on this repulsion attraction dynamic. Yes. Um, Then there's the phallic method by which they feed. Uh, The fangs elongate and penetrate the flesh of their prey so that the vampire can literally draw life from the victim's uh, or willing participants' veins. Yeah, Um, we've said this before, but originally Hollywood's early horror films used this as a sexual simulation. You know, they couldn't show sex on screen, so something in a horror film that sort of you know, the flash of heaving bosom and uh, the curve of a white neck kind of thing. Yeah. Um, flashing that in an old black and white film, uh, with the neckline getting progressively more risque as we move into Technicolor, um, that was somehow more acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, this method of feeding is also how the vampire procreates. So in that one action, we have both the biologically male part of reproduction, the penetration, and the biologically female part, the transformation of cells to create a new type of being. Yeah. So. (laughs) You might have a male or female vampire in in how they're presented, but in reproductive terms, they are a gender. And it's just as likely to be a male vampire penetrating a male victim, a female vampire penetrating a male victim, or a female one, as it is to be a traditional male penetration of a female. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry about all the uses of the word penetration there, but I guess I'm trying to hammer the point home. Yes. <laughs> that, that, that there really is... There's some, them, some weight to this argument that this it is a sexual simulation thing and it it was very definitely introduced by Hollywood I mean you talk about it in when we will talk about it in a moment and things like Dracula where it's actually not very obvious about how how the feeding goes about yeah I mean basically vampires in Hollywood and literature took traditionally sorry took traditional sexuality and reproduction and 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 shook it like an etch-a-sketch yeah um (laughs) And I think, on the whole, that's probably been more beneficial than it hasn't. Although, as we've said, there have been some not great yes. crossover. But, you know, we'll, we'll look at everything equally. Yeah. Um, let's start with, for this bit on uh, sexuality and reproduction, uh, Carmilla by yes. Sheridan, uh, Sheridan Lafanu, uh, which was written in, I want, it was 1867. It was about 20 years before Dracula was written. Yes. Um, arguably is the first literary lesbian vampire. Um, and to give you a brief overview of the, of the plot, it's it's basically a young woman named Laura who is surprised one, you know, who's living with her widowed father in, you know, 
a modest English country estate kind of thing. I think it might even be a castle. And they're surprised one evening by a young woman turning up on the doorstep in great distress, mm. who is called Carmilla. Um, and as it turns out, uh, Laura herself has had strange dreams throughout her life. There was one point during when she was about six or seven where she dreamt of a beautiful woman coming to her and piercing her breast. Um, and doctors assured her it didn't happen. Um, the, the strange dreams and things carry on throughout her life. And by this point, when Carmilla sort of rocks up on the doorstep, she, um, she's in her late teens. So the, the whole idea of this visitation, this this entity that comes in and sort of preys upon her, mm. which is really quite... For the time, it was extremely risque the way it was portrayed. And it, it really does... It's very difficult to read it in any other way rather than Carmilla has a preference for female victims and this preying is, is you know, sexual in nature as well as actually... Mm. Um, as well, actually, as a, as a bloodletting. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about the relationship between Carmilla and um, the earlier poem, Christabel, in a bit. But... It is, I think, a lot of um, queer people have actually found Carmilla kind of an iconic depiction uh, because here you go, here's something written in the Victorian era that's very definitely saying, yeah, lesbianism's a thing. It doesn't matter what Queen Victoria says. Yes. <laughs> and yes, it's, it's maybe not great that it's tied to this sense of predation, but then mm. again, Carmilla could as easily in this context be... A product of Laura's imagination. It could be that Laura has hit the point of sexual awakening mm. and that Carmilla represents her own burgeoning sexuality and the fact that Laura herself actually is attracted to women, not men. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot in there. I mean, you know, we, it would almost have an entire episode by itself and we are going to try and be a bit strict with our, our yes. episode times this today. Um, but... But yeah, it's very difficult to... I mean, I don't see how you could read that and not go, oh, right, so they're kind of gay for each other. And yes, it's not a he healthy dynamic, but it's definitely no. there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I do think that it kind of really did set the standard in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and yeah, as we said, we'll talk about Christabel in a minute as well. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, shall we move on to Dracula? Yeah, let's move on to Dracula. Dracula! I don't know, I honestly, I'm not sure how much of this was delivered on Bram Stoker's part, um, mm. but I, I hope I don't need to summarise <laughs> summarise the plot of Dracula. Anyone who needs that, you know, we have done an entire episode that covers Dracula and Magda Makrana. Um, yeah. So you can check that out. <laughs> but there is a lot in Dracula that is very replete with homoerotic imagery and gender nonconformity and various other things. Um, I think, let, let's tackle the gender nonconformity first. So, yeah. for example, uh, Mina, who was actually based on Bram Stoker's own sister, mm -hmm. his, his sister was incredibly intelligent, incredibly competent and incredibly uh, talented. She went to Paris to study to be an artist, which was almost unheard of for women at that at that time. Yeah. Um, 
and you know she was very very good I think she kept the family's books and things like that and Bram always really looked up to her so Mina has a touch of Bram Stoker's sister about her Mina is not typically female as you would find females in Victorian novels I think this is why it always bugs me when people write Dracula spin-offs and they make Mina this meek little um, very ladylike mouse type creature because she's absolutely not um, and we know that Bram Stoker was forced to severely edit Dracula when he presented it to his, you know, London publishers. And if you compare it to Mac McCrana, which is the, you know, the Powers of Darkness, which um, was the Icelandic translation, there were parts of it that he didn't have to change. One of the parts he didn't have to change in Mac McCrana is the fact that Mina doesn't hang around London waiting to hear what's happened to Jonathan. She does this incredible logistical like miracle of getting herself an unaccompanied woman mm-hmm. across Europe to Romania to go looking for him yeah which is you know again consider the context of the time it, that's incredible that's an incredibly by the Victorian standards mannish thing to do not to sit and wait for, for information but, but to go seeking it yeah yeah absolutely and it's kind of interesting because <laughs> Throughout, everyone pretty much except Jonathan, who kind of gets coerced into it, everyone, everyone tries to treat Mina like she's, you know, a good, a dainty lady. And then they keep going, well, that was a mistake. We should have brought her into our confidence and stuff like that. And if, if, if only we'd listened to what Mina said. Yeah. It's kind of like the alien thing. It's like, if only we'd listened to Ripley. Ripley knew what was going on. Exactly, yeah. Um, and it... It's very funny. Mina, I think they've downgraded her in a couple of the films to say that she's a school teacher. Not that that's not a worthy career. But Mina has actually trained as a stenographer, which at that time was a traditionally male role. And she's good at it. She's so good. She assembles all these disparate accounts, because let's remember Dracula is is an epistolary novel, and assembles them into a narrative that makes them go, oh, yes, obviously Dracula. Dracula's our dude. Exactly, yeah. She's basically a detective. She is. Um, And they make several comments about her basically sort of having the head of a head of a man the heart of a woman the head of a man i think it is she, or something ha- like that. she has a man's brain but for she has a woman's heart the good god knew what he was about when he made so happy a combination something like that i think it yeah. Is. yeah and it's for me that's interesting and they said happy a combination because you know there's this idea that you know, she she's not one or the other. She is a combination. She's both. Yeah. And so we do have this great gender nonconformity, which is literally, you know, acknowledged and perhaps not acknowledged in the way by by you know that that we would might do it nowadays, but it is there regardless. Yes. While outwardly conforming to society and moving through it and moving with its rules Mina manages to defy it at every single turn and yet never be thought less the lady in terms of, of social pressures yeah um, she always acts in a, in a way that is not you know scandalous or unbecoming but at the same time society says oh you can't do that because you're a woman and Mina laughs into her sleeve about the whole thing and just does it anyway yeah she literally so, does. <laughs> it's remarkable. Um, compare and contrast with Lucy. Lucy is not the character she's presented to be in an awful lot of films in the book, although we'll talk about why that is in a moment. Mm. Um, in the book, Lucy is actually a sweet and intelligent girl 
Um, yeah. She just doesn't have to work the same way Mina does. Um, it's just Lucy and her mother. And Lucy is actually very compassionate. And yeah. yes, she she's amused by the fact that three men proposed to her all within one day. But I think most of us would be if that happened. We'd be amused and embarrassed and, you know, even now kind of a bit bit freaked out by the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I would be. <laughs> um, so, yeah, again, by the standards of the time. I think people then use that in film, etc., to say that Lucy was a bit of a good-time girl and a flirt, otherwise three men wouldn't have wanted her. And they kind of miss the fact that the three men bond over their love of Lucy almost in a polyamorous way. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's kind of interesting that the way I see it is that she she basically is able she makes friends quickly yes and she forms very true and loving friendships um but she was only in love with one person and so she formed these true friendships with these other men and and these were friendships were true enough that actually when she rejected them they still you know they, they genuinely still loved her for her and there was no hard feelings yes they were sad and and things like that but there was there was no loss of anything if you know what i mean yeah it's almost the purest form of love isn't it where it's a case of i wish you had decided on me but i i can't be bitter or resentful because your happiness is important and also you've been you've acted in such a way towards me that I can't help but think of you with gratitude kind of thing, which you know, is a very Victorian way of putting it. Yeah. It's almost like um, what's it? Uh, Quincy and uh, the Doctor are both kind of like, well, we will take a step back and occupy a Lancelot sort, sort, sort of role in her life, you know? Yeah. And, and there's no indication they never give any indication of but you made me believe that these feelings were reciprocated. Yeah. You know, she she never did that. They never showed any kind of resentment for that. There's no indication at all. And for me, this is particularly interesting because Lucy, again, is doing something which was not, would not have been typical, um, so typically shown for the Victorian audience, which was this having a relationship, a friendship with men. Yes, absolutely. A friendship she could then call upon in times of dire need. Yeah. I'd also point out Lucy is actually quite unselfish. Mm. Um, she talks about herself in a derogatory way, saying, don't worry about spoiled little Lucy. Um, but she knows on some level she's dying or that, you know, something's happening to her. Some actually very traumatic thing is happening to her. She's changing. Yeah. And she doesn't really want to go. She's kind of fighting tooth and nail. Um, and yet at the same time, she sort of selflessly releases Mina and says, no, you've got to go to Jonathan. You love him. Go, go and marry him. Go and yeah. be happy for both of us. Um, and there's other things like in the book, they manage to conceal how bad Lucy is feeling from her mother because her mother is not in good health. And her mother yeah. dies before Lucy does. Yeah. So, you know, she's very much sort of like, I'm okay, I'm not ill and I'm making a big fuss about it. It's like, I'm ill, I don't think anyone can save me, but at the same time, I'm not going to... I'm not going to give up without a fight, but I'm also not going to make everything all about me. She's a very maligned character in a lot of ways. She is, yeah. And I think it, it's interesting because 
when she is transformed, people use this, sort of this transformation of uh, as basically saying, ah, there we go. She's, you know, now when she's transformed, she becomes the sexual being. She becomes the sort of liber, you know, liberated. And now we see what she's truly like. And I think that's not right at all. Um, because she has not been unleashed to become her true self. She has been transformed into something completely different. She's there, she's attacking children and stuff like that. She is basically using, you know, this is not the same person. It's a creature within her body that has sort of some recollections and things like that, but is basically using all the tools available to her. So it's using her womanliness to try and sort of grab children, uh, basically in a, in a kind of a, a sort of you can trust me way, and then using her, her womanliness to try and pull in the men who she knows were attracted to her. Yes, it's kind of like her her charisma and her her brightness in life mm -hmm. have been sort of turned towards their their darkest ends if you see what i mean exactly yeah um and i don't think this is an expression of lucy as a character this is an expression of the evil of of vampirism yeah yeah absolutely um and then we get on to dracula and jonathan harker who have a very strange... Okay, obviously they have a very strange relationship, but yeah. there's a weird sort of restraint and strain between them too. Not mm -hmm. because I think in any way that Jonathan is attracted to Dracula, no. other than to find him a very interesting and at the same time quite repulsive person. Yeah. Um, but this is where I will bring up the 1992 film and say, yeah, you may not have intended some queer subtext there, but there definitely is. Um there's the bit that uh, it's the sexy shaving scene is what I want to call it <laughs> um, Jonathan you know doesn't have a mirror in his room so he's got a little pocket mirror in his shaving kit and he's shaving this is in the book but the way they portray it in the film makes it makes you go oh um, and he's got a straight razor which you know was common for the Victorian era for shaving and he accidentally nicks himself because he realises that Dracula's standing in the doorway behind him but he hasn't seen him in the mirror, which, you know, immediately should freak you out slightly. Um, and sort of Dracula sort of drifts in and, sit and looks at the mirror and does something in the mirror, just cracks. And he, in the book, he throws it out the window and says, we do not keep baubles of such vanity about the place. And yeah. Jonathan's like, yeah, but how will I shave? And, but in the actual film, Dracula comes up behind him, takes the straight razor in this, this long clawed hand and begins to complete the shave for him. And there is something incredibly disturbing and yet sort of homoerotic about the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's very intimate because it's not it's not like going to a barber whose job it is. This is an intimate thing of two people and one of them is handing someone essentially a weapon. They're very dangerous and allowing them to very gently caress their face <laughs> with this weapon. It's a, you've got to trust someone to do that, particularly if they're not a professional. You've got to, you know, and, and it's the slow steadiness, the fact that there's, there's complete attention with it. It is very homoerotic. <laughs> I think you can also kind of feel in that scenario particularly in the film dracula's want because with one small motion he could cut jonathan's throat and just drink his fill there's yeah. the part where um gary oldman who's playing dracula 
turns away with the bloody razor in his hand where Jonathan's just nicked his throat a little bit and he licks the blade and it's just the overwhelming lust on his face as he's doing it and that sort of all ties into this whole sort of sexy shaving scene as far as I'm concerned <laughs> and then you move Jonathan on to the fact that you know being a red-blooded man of action in Victorian terms he won't stay put and he does betray the rules of the castle where he falls asleep where he should not have done um, which is where you get the mother and two daughters I think they've made it three sisters in the film but in the book it is a mother and two daughters that Dracula has turned into vampires is it? yeah it is oh okay everybody since then has gone oh we don't like the mother and two daughter thing we'll make it three sisters but it's a mother and two daughters fair enough keep going (laughs) Um, and certainly I mean the, in the book actually I read this when I was nine years old and I read the unabridged version of it and gave myself nightmares and one of the parts that always really stuck with me was the part where I mean because Jonathan just basically vanishes out of the book and you're back to Mina and that's it you don't know what happened to Jonathan he could be dead he probably is dead you know something really bad's happened to him yeah um and when you get his diary later when Mina is typing it up so everyone can read it because he's written it in shorthand um, you know he's saying and I know it will pain Mina to read this but I desired their kisses there's a lot going on there there's a lot of very sexual stuff Um, he's clearly in thrall and uh, there's a lot of bloodletting and things you know they take my blood they keep me weak so I can't escape etc which might seem like a trivial things keeping you a little bit anemic but actually being a little bit anemic will stop you doing an awful lot of things let me tell you seriously yeah (laughs) Um, so so there's that that side of things as well so if we sort of look at it as the as the film where nothing is really left to the imagination there for good reason and you have these beautiful mostly naked women sort of pulling him back onto a bed and then alternately teasing him and feeding on him um it's again it's another very sexy scene (laughs) but it's also clearly a predation it is not kind of yeah this is you might be enjoying it but you know it's going to kill you at the same time yeah what's interesting for me and something which i feel like you get in the original book but which has been lost in a lot of the adaptations is the fact that we talk about this sort of this gender non-conformity with Mina, but there is some with Jonathan Harker as well, in that he occupies a role which up until that point within the Gothic was very much occupied by women. Yeah, absolutely. And the Gothic did play around with this quite a lot anyway, you know, which was, you know, part of it. But you've got this interesting thing where he is, he's essentially the damsel in distress. He is the one who ends up sort of falling prey to us what is essentially essentially hysteria um you know he is the one who who basically has a a breakdown very justifiably um but and and is the one who's been sort of held in this castle um who's been you know kind of isolated who's been in control you know in the control of a, of a man um etc all of this thing is is typical for a female characters yeah absolutely the the forced letter writing for example yeah exactly and and then the sort of the being nursed back to health 
you know, um, by by good women or, or by sort of and, and with religious aspects and stuff like that. You know, he ends up with these nuns and stuff like that. And then he's he's kind of uh, sort of brought, you know, taken care of by Mina, who who's sort of taking charge. And you think about how that parallels with what's happening with Lucy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Okay, let's talk about Christabel. (laughs) Let's talk about Christabel. Christabel by Samuel Taylor Coleridge is not a complete poem. It was intended to be two long, sort of, two long ballads uh, with three more to follow, and uh, Coleridge never finished. And all we can say is, yeah, we see you, Coleridge, you know? (laughs) We understand. (laughs) But uh, this the part Christabel was infamous for being the one that Lord Byron <laughs> read out loud on a certain night in Vi- Villa Diodati on the shores of Lake Geneva and that so frightened Percy Bysshe Shelley that he ran screaming out into the storm that had blown up. This was during the year without summer. So it's already got, it's, it's already got a long pedigree of you know being creepy. I have to say I had a little read of it again this morning and you know looking at it from the perspective of the pre you know the pre-victorian perspective this would have been regency times and i think it, when was it written 17 1767 i think mm. um something like that it, you know it was incredibly risque for its time and there is an element of of creepiness to it definitely um <laughs> I'm sorry, you were really entertained by the Shelley story, aren't you? <laughs> I love it so much because I'm like, he's so extra. It's just, ah, just running. And I just imagine Mary just there, like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> Come on, my love. <laughs> She's she a mere, mere slip of a girl at nineteen? Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, if you like that, you'll love the fact that both Percy Bysshe Shelley and Byron wrote to Coleridge about this poem. Byron saying there are many passages, especially that of Christabel and Geraldine in the boudoir together, which will stay with me forever and have a hold on my imagination to this day. And uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley saying that he it's given him nightmares, basically writing to complain to Coleridge that he'd given him nightmares. <laughs> I'm just imagining Coleridge just going about his daily routine. You know, the post comes at breakfast. He's like, what the hell is this? Yes. A couple of weirdos just... The, the days when wannabe writers could just write to the great directly. Yeah. Ask their opinions on things. Good times. Anyway, the summary of Christabel is in some ways a little bit similar to Carmilla. And if you think that Carmilla may have been inspired by it, there's a chance that a certain aspects of it were. Mm. Christabel follows a sort of it's got a kind of almost quasi-medieval feel to it basically the young woman Christabel is living with her widowed father in a fine English castle blah 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 blah, edge of the woods blah 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 Um, she's out riding one day and she finds a a young woman in distress whose name is Geraldine and Geraldine explains that the reason she's in the state she's in is because she was kidnapped by rough men who took her away from her father's place and she's escaped them but now she's lost in the woods and Christabel takes pity on her and brings her back to her house Mm -hmm. and here's the important part invites her inside Coleridge makes a real point of saying the invites her inside part right 
Anyway, being girls of the time and it being perfectly normal to share a bed with someone you've just met as long as they're the same gender as you, um, Christabel is, you know, to lie down in... Sorry, uh, Geraldine is to lie down with Christabel in her boudoir, sharing the large bed to get mm-hmm. the large feather bed. Um, at which point, as Christabel disrobes, sorry, not Christabel, as as uh, Geraldine disrobes, Christabel can't help noticing a strange mark upon her breast and down her left hand side. So we've already got the okay. Had to be invited inside. Check. Clearly, devil's mark on the left hand side of the body. Again, mm-hmm. check. And then they go to bed together. And it is, it's clearly, you know, nothing is really put on the page as such, but it's mm-hmm. clearly uh, a very uh, lesbian experience and a homoerotic awakening type thing. Mm-hmm. At which point things start to go really badly wrong after that, because Geraldine, now confident in her place, and Christabel being quite wan and drained for some reason the following morning... Um, Geraldine bewitches Christabel's father, who just becomes enamoured her and obsessed. And it, the way it looks like the poem is going is that the father is going to marry Geraldine, mm-hmm. while Geraldine is obviously preying on the daughter and has got the father in thrall as well. She's clearly a vampiric type entity. Yeah. Unfortunately, Coleridge didn't finish the poem, so we don't know. We don't know what happens. <laughs> but I think we can assume. Yes. It's very interesting. It is interesting, and I kind of like it. I mean, it's so over-dramatised. And what's, it goes something along the lines, and, and there on the bosom and the lo- left side swell, the devil's mark, and she to lie with Christabel, and it's all exclamation marks, and you can just see somebody really proclaiming it. <laughs> <laughs> this is a moment It's just Shelley being like, oh! running into Byron the being like, yeah, that's hot. <laughs> that's hot. We like that. Oh, God. They are they're so stupid. Yeah. Sorry. What I find interesting about Christabel particularly, even though, you know, Carmilla's got its echoes and has probably, in fact, done a better job of certain aspects of it, mm. even cynically, um, is the fact that it leans on this idea that you've invited something into your house which cannot then be banished again yeah which to me is makes a pretty good metaphor for a queer awakening to be honest it's like oh now i know and now i can't not know yeah i i do have to admit that there is something about that it's it's also interesting because there's this conversation about consent Yes. And again, you've got to think about the period, which is that um, as horrible as it is, there was no such thing as as, as marital rape. Um, if you were married... Or rather, then... there wasn't in the law. To be honest, yes. there wasn't in the law until 1992. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so, sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. obviously... Yeah. Um, so it, it was not recognised by law. It was it was basically just see, it, people wouldn't have had the kind of the vocabulary for that or anything like that. It wouldn't have been seen as bad, though I though it would have been seen as bad if you get my meaning. Yeah. Um, and so there is this kind of this idea of of this contract basically being kind of submitted and there and that being final the invitation of someone into your home, the bringing of them into your family, 
I mean, the the idea of, of sort of bringing into the home thresholds and stuff like that, this has also been very deeply tied with marriage. It's been deeply tied with family. I mean, we still have tradition today of, you know, carrying your new bride across the threshold, etc., stuff like that. So for me, it, it is interesting to see those kind of parallels as well, to basically say that by bringing her into sort of the household or by bringing a vampire into the household, you've basically just said you know you've given your consent for everything that follows in terms of sort of the folkloric aspect now obviously times have changed nowadays but that particular aspect has remained but i do find it the parallels interesting yeah Uh, i would also add if we're going to just briefly touch on the whole idea of consent i'm assuming most of our listeners now have heard us speak before about how context is really important yeah Um, but in this instance let's also just draw attention to the fact that you could not have the heroine of a piece uh showing that she was interested in sex yeah she could not be the initiator um she could not have a sexual awakening whereby she was a, a you know, inverted commas, willing participant, even mm. though the following text then sort of suggests that, yes, she was actually really into it. So the only way... And, th- you know, this was a thing way, way, way up until the late... No, sort of the early 1900s and, and beyond, to be honest. Mm. Uh, it's certainly a thing in film up until the 1960s. So we we can't apply our own notions of consent to what appears to be a literary lack of non-consent because it's kind of coding for... Uh, no, both people were having a good time, even if it was ultimately an unhealthy dynamic. Um, yeah. it, it's not quite the same. Let's be honest, men when they're writing, sorry, 18th century men when they're writing about women being ravished weren't exactly pulling any punches. No. So uh, this is clearly not the same thing, is what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, let's move on because we still have quite a fair bit to cover. Yeah. Basically, all of these examples, all three that we've managed to get through so far, um, do deal with sexual awakening in some form or other. Even, and even in the original text, perhaps especially there, it's not clear what exactly that awakening entails. Yes. So let's talk about the other and titillation. <laughs> <laughs> Now, yes. we all know that showing non-traditional sex has been code for deviancy in horror for a long time. Um, and there's been an element of allowing the reader to flirt with walking on the wild side, whether that's via kink, BDSM, or in fact playing what if with your sexual orientation. Yeah. We're not going to argue that lumping queer sexual attraction in with monsters and deviancy is an especially good thing. But on the other hand, it's also not turned out to be a completely bad thing either, because in order to have something talked about, people do need to know it's there. Yes. Now, we talked about the Hayes Code in a previous episode, but in short, one thing it stipulated against was depictions of LGBTQ people, um, queer people, uh, in film. Uh, Now, the code was lifted in the 1960s, but it's taken a shockingly long time for film and TV to catch up to this. Yes. Books had a little bit more leeway, but if you wanted to include queer motifs, you had to depict them as undesirable, um, ally them to the monstrous, up until comparatively recently. Mm. And let's face it, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Sheridan Lefanu were most likely including lesbian imagery as titillation and for shock value, uh, rather than actually as a sort of commentary on queer 
relationships um, consider the audience they were writing for mostly victorian men yes um now vampire films continue to do this well up into the 80s and re- realistically probably further <laughs> yeah the question is um and it's not a question i think we can completely answer is did the writers and directors have any idea that their story might be delivering a very different message to the one they originally intended <laughs> In addition, um, this is probably as good a place as any to mention the vampire in connection with the AIDS crisis. Um, Now, once again, uh, both of us doubt the messaging was intentional uh, in a lot of cases. However, watching vampire films where beautiful demons infected naive young people um, in visually sexual tableaus during the 80s could not help but forge a connection. Um, basically beware sexuality of all kinds but especially the seductive non-traditional kind uh, was the unintentional takeaway yeah so as we've said not all vampire coding for queerness was good no Um, but again at a time when people weren't really wanting to talk about AIDS it may not have been entirely bad either yeah it's one of those interesting things (laughs) yeah where different things could mean different things for different people yeah it really could yeah okay so having you know looked at a little bit of the negative side i mean to be honest we could do entire episodes on the negative portrayals of vampires with you know queerness the the bad connotations but quite frankly i think most of those are as unintentional as the positive ones are and i would rather focus on the positive ones because i think we can get more out of that yeah i would i would agree uh, plus, I'm going to witter about interview with a vampire in a minute, so <laughs> let's move on to the third and final segment of this episode, which is family lifestyle and self-rejection. Yes. So anyone who's felt like an outsider for any reason, let alone sexuality, might find themselves drawn to the vampire mythos um, as it exists in film and in literature. Um, Instead of the family who does not understand you, uh, or who may even be rejecting you, there's the option to join a new family um, and a dark, glittering new world to embrace your own otherness. Uh, And as part of that, you know, we talked about it last week, uh, but to actually sort of just go batshit. (laughs) to literally to just to unleash all of the anger the resentment the fear um and to find a kind of new position of confidence and power um and self-assurance and just lean into it as well yeah definitely yeah it seems counterintuitive but most vampire stories can also be viewed as stories of found family or created family or alternate community hmm and it's one of those things I think I knew, but until I sat down and went, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, um, it kind of didn't register as a conscious thought, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and I do think that like the more sort of time has gone on, the more people have started to lean into that with modern things. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Interview the Vampire. I'm mostly 
this is obviously by Anne Rice originally, it was a 1976 novel, and it didn't get a great deal of literary acclaim, but it absolutely found a huge audience. It propelled Anne Rice, who was an unknown at the time, to um, almost untouched heights when it came to when it came to being a best-selling author. Mm. Um, and we'll, we'll get into why in a moment. I'm also going to be talking about the 1994 film. I'm not going to be talking about the new AMC adaptation. It's done a few things that kind of make my teeth hurt to look at it, and I just I don't want to do that. I don't want to be the person who's sitting here and hating on something, which I understand a lot of people have actually really enjoyed. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just not going to talk about it. <laughs> yep, fair <laughs> enough. Move on. Um, brief synopsis of Interview with the Vampire. Well, I'm obviously not going to go into the sort of level of detail Anne Rice did, but let's be clear. Anne Rice wrote horror, but they were introspective little novels about what it meant, to, well, not even little, some of them massive, uh, about what it meant to be human. Mm. I mean, you know, do you actually have to be physically human to be human or humane? Um, yeah. Are you a monster just because the world says you're one? So that's kind of the premise for a lot of her books. Um, Interview with a Vampire it is obviously the start of the Vampire Chronicles. It's told from the perspective of Louis, who is a plantation owner in the late 1700s in Louisiana, mm. with everything that entails. Um, he's lost his wife... No. In the film, he has lost his wife and his ch and her child and their child, you know, I think she dies in childbirth in the film. Um, in the book, he kind of has just lost interest in them, and I think that's very telling. Mm. Um, he, he wants death, and he's doing stupid things. He's gambling, he's going out and getting drunk, he's getting into fights with pimps, you know? The sort yeah. of that he's walking in the rougher areas of town, trying to find the spark that's missing from his life. Um, he even phrases it as, you know, the invitation... Uh, to death was one that was constantly with me and I was offering it to everyone but it was the vampire the, <laughs> the vampire that accepted the invitation at which point he is preyed upon by Lestat uh, Lestat is a much older vampire we know that he's was he? Lestat's at least 100 years older by that mm. point so that's already a massive age gap <laughs> um and we don't really know where Lestat's come from in this book. We don't find out until much later when Lestat decides to set the record straight in later novels. Yeah. Uh, but he makes a point of draining Louis and then sort of saying to him, I'm going to give you the choice I never had. Uh, do, you want, do you want the dark gift kind of thing? And Louis says yes. And from there, it's the story of their relationship together and that mm. relationship's breakdown. And Louis, who realizes what he has become and kind of hates himself for it you know he he rejects his his natural food is human blood you yeah. know but he hates it he finds something monstrous in what they are in the fact that the stat is so unapologetic about it and will kill two or three times in the night hmm. from the stats perspective the stats always like well i was the best at everything when i was a human i'll be the best at everything now i'm a vampire so i'll be the best vampire i can be if that means killing three people a night i'll kill three people a night hmm. louis like no 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 human life still has value and that's yeah. like yes i know human life still has value that's why it's fun kind of thing yeah <laughs> so so Lestat has picked Louis to be his eternal companion, to root him in the century he's in. Um, Louis both wants Lestat and hates Lestat, and wants to leave Lestat and wants to be with Lestat. And mm. it's that push-pull relationship that really drives the novel. 
up until the point Lestat does something incredibly manipulative, Louis kind of breaks and gives way to his nature, and there is a cholera epidemic in, in the town, the lower parts of the town. Mm-hmm. He finds a little girl who's in the book five years old, who in the film is 11. I can understand why they age her up to 11. It makes a bit more sense. Um, mm-hmm in terms of portraying it and selling it to an audience. But in the book, she's only five. And his control snaps and he feeds on her. And then when he realises what he's done, he runs away and he's just sickened with himself. Mm. The stat finds Louis and brings him back. And then he changes the little girl in front of her, in front of him rather. And he says, and he even says to Louis via talking to the little girl, Claudia, Mm -hmm. um, why he's done it. And Claudia's saying, you know, are are you my father? And Lestat said, yes, my love, we are both your fathers. And he looked at Louis. Louis was going to leave us, but he's not now. Are you, Louis? And the little girl just sort of hugs Louis, and Louis knows at that moment he can't leave. So he stays with Lestat for another couple of centuries. Well, another eight decades, sorry. Yeah. In the end, it's Claudia who kills Lestat, or allegedly kills Lestat. And they both go off travelling around the world trying to find out what they are, if there are any others like them, or is Lestat the only one? Um, and things go horribly, horribly wrong. But the cause of a lot of the suffering and the reason that other vampires are attracted to Louis is because he's got this tremendous empathy and compassion and because he hates what he is. For some reason, mm. that's fascinating to them. On the other hand, you've got Lestat, who is really overt out there being the absolute best version of a vampire can be living it up be living and and basically living or existing richly um fancy clothes fancy uh, accoutrements fancy houses fancy servants etc mm. etc so i've heard the argument that in some ways it's not a great depiction um but on the other hand this is this is clearly the first overt gay parenting situation with a child in the mix the child comes to be 80 years old and really really hates people yeah but the point is you've got two gay men and a little girl yeah i mean it's it's interesting as well because i i do feel like you and obviously not quite this level but um you know you can get poor relationships within the, the the queer community absolutely like, that is a thing that happens and in fact uh, the problem with the 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 sort of these depi- the, with depictions and of sort of um queer people across time um and the problem with this kind of this monstrousness and the queer coding is that it has basically meant that there is this expectation that queer relationships are going to be monstrous, if that makes sense. Yeah, although I do feel we've gone the other direction where now you cannot, or, you know, not without massive amounts of criticism, depict a queer person who is just a mess as well. Yeah, I agree. And I I think that this, that is a big problem because you do need both sides of the dynamic. This idea that no one person is a monster because they are queer just as they are not automatically a successful saint if <laughs> if they are as well it's and like there I'm is some yeah i've ascended to the sainthood cause... yeah <laughs> but there is something interesting with interview with a vampire because it is this messy relationship um and it's 
acknowledged as being messy as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Anne Rice herself, when asked about this, when asked about the homoerotic subtext, kind of said, what subtext? In the sense of this <laughs> subtext? Is, is and I have to admit, I read these books as a teenager and I've been re- rereading them again recently and really enjoying them and getting different things out of them now that, you know, a good number of decades have passed. Um, and the witch books as well, the, the uh, Mayfair witches. The Mayfair witches resonated a little bit more strongly with me mm. um, because they had an actual bisexual character in there. And in fact, they had several, but there was one very particular who kind of... I don't think they even use the term bisexual, really. Mm. Um, but he very obviously goes for men and women. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting. So these were clearly very formative experience for me. Mm. Um, but I remember reading the first book and, and being like, okay, so Lestat and Louis are really into each other. In fact, they're borderline obsessed with each other. Yeah. <laughs> Louis going off with Armand. Armand is kind of like, I thought I could win you over to my side, but you're still obsessed with Lestat. And Louis's like, yeah, I thought you knew that. <laughs> it's really almost cruel. <laughs> Um, nor is it the fact that they are just two gay men who are like, yeah, let, let's set up house together and you can knit and I'll bake kind of thing. They're not that dynamic. They go out together, they get hookers in, and then they eat the hookers, you know? Yeah. So from our perspective, that's not good. But from their perspective, that's like being with the best person in your life and downing a couple of bottles of wine. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So you do have to add the horror dynamic in as well. I just, I don't agree with the idea that that Louis being the sort of self-hating vampire and Lestat being the loud, out-there vampire um, are just two sides of the same coin and that those are the only two flavours of being gay you can have. Yeah. Let's, uh, realistically, both of them are bi because both of them have um, flings with, you know, gender kind of doesn't matter. And Anne Rice actually came out and said... She felt that when it came to love, you could have many, many types of love with many types of people, and that gender was the last thing that mattered. She mm. actually said herself, I think I have a gay sensibility. She didn't... She was fine with being female, she was fine with people saying she and her, etc. But she also said, I don't think of myself primarily as a woman, I think of myself primarily as a person. And for me, you know, gender doesn't really kind of come into that that's not something that's important what i'm interested in is is the humanity or lack thereof of these characters mm-hmm. and in myself so she kind of felt like that she slid up and down the gender scale basically she may even have been bisexual and but just because she got married to stan rice quite early she never never came to that realization or never decided that she felt in that direction if you see what i mean yeah absolutely she certainly writes very convincingly about all different types of, of um, sexual attraction and love. And, you know, a lot of it isn't very healthy, but it's the very unhealthiness that makes it interesting. Yeah. And then not in an exploitative way. Anyway, the fact that Lestat has gone out and gone, well, I'm basically a vampire orphan. I'm going to create my own vampire family, literally create them. <laughs> <laughs> I shall have a husband and child kind of thing. Uh, yeah. So yes, I do love the like subtext. <laughs> what subtext? <laughs> subtext. <laughs> it may. I've it, literally it, got him fondling his n- n- his victim's nipples as he's biting into his neck. How subtext is that? <laughs> yeah. I just, I just, 
just always makes me think of sorry and it's not to do with vampires but it's when they did the interview with Jude Law and um and Robert Downey Jr about the the Sherlock Holmes stuff and they're like it's a bit of a bromance they're like why do you keep using that word you know it's like because it's a it's a romance uh but you know that it's it's they're just brothers and and Jude Law's like it's just a romance (laughs) it's like subtext what subtext exactly thank you (laughs) Anyway, okay, uh, so next, let's talk about what we do in the shadows. Um, Now, we're going to be talking about the movie rather than the series. Yeah. Um, Because there is, um, there are actually queer vampires um, and werewolves uh, in the the series, but I haven't, I haven't watched it properly. Uh, So I I don't feel I can actually comment about it, really. And I don't think you have either. Oh, no, I've watched. I've watched everything. I've watched. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, I could comment on it. I think it's less that they're queer and more that I find this person attractive, either as a victim, or as yeah. a. We just really like this person. I love in the film the fact that the werewolves, the the alpha, is genuinely the one trying to look after all the werewolves. But yeah. I again cannot help feeling that there's some homoerotic subtext there in the sense of yeah, we're all going to get naked together and chain ourselves to trees. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're werewolves, not swearwolves. It's just brilliant. It's so good. Um, and while the vampires are not overtly queer or whatever, um, there's kind of this, well yes we were together, of course we were together, we were lovers for many years, as men will be, you know. And then there's the, the thing where one of them, I can't remember what the name of the one, but he's the one that seems to be most dingy and unwashed and he's doing an erotic dance for his friends and complains when someone comes in and and, and yeah. interrupts it and it's just like you've got three blokes and as entertainment of the evening they haven't turned on the rugby what they've done is one of them has said I will do an erotic dance from my homeland for you yeah <laughs> okay and the others are just gay. sat there like yeah okay um. yeah we're in this it's like how dare you interrupt our evening of entertainment <laughs> Um, it's it's very very good, yeah. In that respect, um, yeah. I, I think that's kind of where we're going. You've got, you've definitely got found family in all aspects of what we do in the shadows and Wellington Paranormal. By the way, you should watch Wellington Paranormal if you haven't. It's fucking brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, moving on to Castlevania, obviously the series, not the video game. Yes. Um, I mean the. the we're not even going to we don't even need to touch on the subtext there's just text i mean that's just flat out there's lesbian vampires there's polyamorous activities there's gay vampires there's it doesn't seem to i think it's kind of the it it taps into the Anne rice thing of you know if you're going to live forever why wouldn't you try everything that's on the menu yeah at that point it's kind of it doesn't really matter (laughs) yeah absolutely um I, I think I, I sort of I, I like it as well because they they didn't even you know just sort of say well we're going to put this to the side and we're only going to have it with the villains or anything like that we you really don't no um, you've got Alucard who is ends up in a, this kind of sort of poly relationship very briefly before everything goes terribly wrong of course for him um, yeah. Yeah, again, there's there's a lot of 
there's a lot of unhealthy type we what we would call unhealthy relationships but you can see again it's that vampiric attraction repulsion mixing yeah. up um sex and death and feeding all together which is kind of what you'd expect um you also have the more traditional bonds of found family and friendship ripening into um more romantic traditional love as well um but I think what strikes me about Castlevania is whether you're on the good side or the bad side, they form really intense bonds with each other. Yeah, they do. And again, as we've said, that is a staple of vampire fiction. Yes. Um, I'm only going to talk very briefly about this next one because I feel like I bang on about it a lot, in, usually in its defence, which is, you know, not fair to everything else out there. But, you know, Twilight... And I'm like, yeah. yeah, I know, there are no overtly queer characters in Twilight, but it is incredibly popular and has been incredibly popular with members of the queer community because they understand that that sense of finding somewhere to belong in the way Bella does. And I'm going to talk about this a bit more in the following episode, so I won't go into more detail now. But yeah. again, it is part of that family lifestyle and self-rejection acceptance dynamic. Yeah, completely agree. So we've actually landed within our time frame Matt. oh my god <laughs> well done us <laughs> um so yeah um this is as i said the first part of a double bill uh we'd be interested to know your thoughts about things so far do you agree with us do you disagree with us do you think we've missed something out and what is some of your favorite uh subtext or just plain old text of uh queerness in vampire fiction do let us know now before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and this week jewels i believe you've got one for us i have and it is both suitably queer and suitably spooky <laughs> okay um, it's, al- it's also a great audiobook the audiobook is narrated by january lavoy who is hands down the best audiobook narrator probably of all time even better than okay. stephen fry wow um, okay i know and i know that that's hefty praise right there but i stand yeah. by it anyway the book is called even though i knew the end by c.l polk it's set in sort of 1930s um, America. It has a detective noir type feel to it. The main character is in fact a private investigator who unbeknownst to her lover has made a pact with the devil or with a demon um, which means that she knows she's going to die very soon and she's being a bit hot and cold in her relationship with this other woman because she knows she's going to die soon Mm. Uh, she did it for good reason she was part of a group of magical magic wielders um, and she lost her brother and she did this to get her brother back at which point her brother then rejected her for it oh um, but then there's a series of murders that happen. I mean, she wants the, her her lovers basically saying, "Look, come away with me. We'll just we'll go away and we'll we'll get a little farm and we'll raise goats and things." And she's like, "Well, maybe I can. Maybe I can outrun this terrible deal I've made." And then all these murders start happening, and the stamp is that there's something demonic behind it. Yeah. So she gets drawn into investigating it, and then things come out about her lover that she didn't know before, um, and it it goes from sort of detective noir to exploration of the faustian bargain to this really sweet and quite beautiful and poignant queer love story to a a weirdly hopeful but ah kind of horror-esque ending and i don't want to give things away and spoil it but i had this 
this novella for absolutely ages and I just kept thinking no I'm not in the mood no I'm not in the mood and I should have picked it up sooner because it was absolutely brilliant I listened to the whole thing in one sitting it was that good okay that is very good praise <laughs> definitely have to check that out thank you very much for that recommendation did and I say the... who it was by uh, I can't remember no you said who it was narrated by <laughs> yes my 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 audio narrator crush on January Lavoie um, sorry it's once again it is even though I knew the end by C.L. Polk got it thank you very much <laughs> and on that note guys we will say thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes for more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>